You are listening to a sermon by Pastor Christopher Sally of New Life Christian Fellowship Church. Blacks came in substantial numbers to the Oklahoma territories during the Great Land Rush of 1889. Fed up with racism, blacks saw Oklahoma as a land of freedom and opportunity. Black political leaders aggressively promoted this promised land, and by the early 1900s, there, is, there were as many as 27 all-black towns. This was during the oil boom, and money was flowing freely. Plentiful service-related jobs were available as porters and janitors and in-home maids and elevator operators, etc. In 1907, when Oklahoma became a state the all-white legislature moved quickly to make sure it was a white man's country. They passed one law after another to keep blacks separate and in their place. Schools, hospitals, businesses, even telephone booths were to be segregated. This was critical in the development of black townships as blacks tended to congregate together for their own protection. Greenwood was a district in Tulsa that was organized in 1906 following Booker T. Washington's 1905 tour of Arkansas, Oklahoma, and the Indian Territories. It was a namesake of the Greenwood District, which Washington had established as his own district in Tuskegee, Alabama, five years earlier. Mabel Little, who ran a beauty shop in Greenwood, said of black people, we had money but we were not able to go and purchase things. So it helped us to go into business for ourselves. And that's when the black people began to build. By 1921, Tulsa's black population had grown grown to almost 11,000 and the Greenwood community was booming. 15 grocery stores, two black movie houses, two black newspapers, four drug stores, two black public schools, a black public library, four barbecue and chili parlors, ice cream parlors, beer taverns, beauty parlors, barbershops, hotels, and 13 churches. The noted black historian John Hope Franklin, who was from the area and graduated from Booker T. Washington, High school in Tulsa said, we did have a little separate enclave where blacks had some measure of financial, social, and political independence, maybe even some clout. But it was still a dangerous time to be black in America. Between 1917 and 1921, racial violence was rampant. In cities across the country, blacks were being beaten, burned, and lynched in alarming numbers. Even local newspapers supported mob violence. In Tulsa, the KKK, whose headquarters was located just four blocks west of Greenwood, included political leaders and members of the police. The situation in Tulsa was fraught with tension, and there was always the potential for violence. But nobody, black or white, was prepared for what occurred on the night of May 31st, 1921. One of the oldest questions we have ever asked is why do bad things happen to good people? Probably the most notable person that comes to mind when we think about that question is Job, who was an upright and blameless man who endured one horrific tragedy after another. But Job is not the only one that's ever gone through. 
The story of suffering is one that a countless number of people can attest to and one that African-Americans in particular have great familiarity with due to our sojourn here in this country. I would dare say our experience as black folks is one of three stages. Either we are getting ready to go through, we are going through, or we just came out. Come on, somebody. On top of that, those of us who are believers in the body of Christ can search the scriptures and see that suffering is a crucial part of our walk of faith. John 15 and 20, Jesus' word says, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted you, me, surely they will persecute you. In, in, in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, it says, yea, and all that live godly will suffer persecution. Knowing this, I believe a second critical question rises to the top, and it's this. Brother, sister, how did you make it through? How did you make it over? And we should be able to respond, let me tell you how I got over. A phrase made popular by the lyric to the song of the same name. How I got over. How I got over. My soul looks back and wonders how I got over forever captured in my mind and soul from the rendition done in the 1974 classic black film uptown Saturday night right after Reverend Flip Wilson's message loose lips sink ships amen and some of the lips in this congregation done sunk aircraft carriers But how I got over was the song that they sang and it was powerful. If you haven't seen that rendition, just go, go to YouTube and just see how they sing that. It's hard in the middle of a, a, a funny black comedy that Sidney Portier put together. They, they get it in. Amen. Amen. And the way you will be able to encourage somebody with how you got over is tied directly to one thing. Your focus on the love of God. On May 30th, 1921, 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black shoe shiner who was employed at a Main Street shine parlor, entered the only elevator in nearby in the nearby Drexel building at 319 South Main Street in order to use the top floor colored restroom which his employer had arranged for use by his black employees. There he encountered Sarah Page, a 17-year-old white elevator operator who was on duty. As he got on the elevator, he stumbled and grabbed her as he reached out to regain his balance. She assumed he was trying to attack her, and she reported it, and he was arrested. The local white paper, the Tulsa Tribune, reported the incident and the arrest, which happened the next day, and added, it looks like there's going to be a lynching tonight. A few blocks away on Greenwood Avenue, members of the black community gathered to discuss the situation at Gurley's Hotel as they believed that Roland was greatly at risk. Many black residents were determined to prevent the crowd from lynching Roland, but they were divided about tactics. Young World War I veterans prepared for a battle by collecting guns and ammunition. Older, more prosperous men feared a destructive confrontation that would likely cost them dearly. 
Upon hearing reports that a mob of hundreds of white men had gathered around the jail where Roland was being held, a group of black men, some of whom were armed, arrived at the jail in order to ensure that Roland would not be lynched. Having seen the armed black men, some of the more than 1,000 whites who had been at the courthouse went home for their own guns. Others headed to the National Guard Armory at the corner of 6th Street and Norfolk Avenue where they planned to arm themselves. However, after a show of force by the National Guard, the crowd withdrew from the armory. Meanwhile, back at the courthouse, the crowd had swollen to nearly 2,000, many of them now armed. Several local leaders, including Reverend Charles Kerr, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, tried to dissuade mob action. Chief of Police John Gustafson later claimed that he tried to talk the crowd into going home. Anxiety on Greenwood Avenue was rising. Many black residents worried about the safety of Roland. The sight of armed black men, however, prepared to take necessary action to protect Roland, was interpreted, interpreted by many white men as a Negro uprising. Eyewitnesses reported gunshots, presumably fired into the air, increasing in frequency during the evening. In Greenwood, rumors began to fly, in particular a report that whites were storming the courthouse. Shortly after 10 p.m., a second larger group of approximately 75 armed black men made their way to the courthouse. They offered their support to the sheriff, who declined their help. The sheriff persuaded the group to leave the jail, assuring them that he had the situation under control. An elderly white man approached O.B. Mann, a black man, and demanded that he hand over his pistol. Mann refused, and the old man attempted to disarm him. Mann shot him. And then, according to the sheriff's reports, all hell broke loose. If we want to make it over, if we want to make it over, if we want to make it through, if we want to be able to tell our story about how we made it over, I would submit to you that first and foremost, you must remember the love of God. Believer, you must remember the love of God. I want you to remember that the love that God has for us is many things. The first thing the love of God is, is it's universal in its appeal. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's universal in its appeal because everybody can get in on it. Amen. It's undeserved in its commitment. Romans 5 and 6 says, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the who? The ungodly. Our actions don't justify his love. So you have to understand and remember, and I do as well, that it's undeserved in its commitment. And it's also unmerited, come on somebody, in its application. It's unmerited. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Timing was when we were yet sinners. We're not worthy of the love of God. It's unmerited in its application. It's unconditional in its embrace. God's love is not a love that says, I love you when, or I love you if, I love you as long as, or I love you because. The love of God is a love that says, I love you eternally, period, full stop. I love you. 
I love you. It's untiring in its effort because it's agape love. It's a love that's active and it's sacrificial and it's selfless and it's sustaining love. It's unchanging, beloved, in its focus. The focus of his love is always to you for your good and for his what? Glory. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are called according to his purpose. We already read into your hearing in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, the apostle Paul saying, I hope you can understand the length, the breadth, the height and the width of the love of God. Even though it surpasses knowledge, I need you to try to grasp that it is unchanging in its focus and it's for you. And last but not least, the love of God is not just universal in its appeal and undeserved in its commitment and unmerited in its application and unconditional in its embrace and untiring in its effort and unchanging in its focus. The love of God is unbroken in its ministry. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or persecution or distress or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor uh, height nor, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're going through and you're suffering, remember the love of God. The gunshots triggered an almost immediate response with both sides firing on the other. The first battle was said to last a few seconds or so, but took a toll as 10 whites and two black men lay dead or dying in the street. The black man who had offered to provide security retreated toward Greenwood. A rolling gunfight ensued. The armed white mob pursued the black contingent toward Greenwood with many stopping to loot local stores for additional weapons and ammunition. Along the way, bystanders, many of whom were leaving a movie theater after a show, were caught off guard by the mobs and fled. Panic set in as the white mob began firing on any black people in the crowd. According to the Oklahoma Historical Society, some in the mob were deputized by police and instructed to get a gun and get a nigga. As unrest spread to the other parts of the city, many middle class white families who employed black people in their homes as live in cooks and servants were accosted by white rioters. They demanded the families turn over their employees to be taken to detention centers around the city. Many white families complied, but those who refused were subjected to attacks and vandalism in turn. The black residents decided that they were going to make a stand at Cincinnati and Frisco Railroad tracks, a dividing line between the black and white commercial districts. Unfortunately, they were outnumbered and had to leave. And of course, as they left, the whites moved in. The white mob began setting fires, mainly in business uh, businesses on Commercial Archer Street at the southern edge of the Greenwood District. As crews from the Tulsa Fire Department arrived to put out fires, they were turned away at gunpoint by the white mob. By 4 a.m., an estimated two dozen black-owned businesses had been set ablaze. In the wake of the invasion came a wall of flames steadily moving northward. Is the whole world on fire? 
asked a young playmate of eight-year-old Kenny Booker, who was fleeing with his family from their home on North Frankfurt. All over the area, fiery horrors were underway. As later recounted by Walter White in the Nation magazine, one story was told to me by an eyewitness of five colored men trapped in a burning house, four burned to death. A fifth attempted to flee and was shot to death as he emerged from the burning structure and his body was thrown back into the flames. Overwhelmed by the sheer number of white attackers, the black residents retreated north on Greenwood Avenue to the edge of town. Chaos ensued as terrified residents fled. The rioters shot indiscriminately and killed many residents along the way. Several residents later testified the rioters broke into occupied homes and ordered the residents out to the streets where they could be driven or forced to walk to detention centers. Throughout the night, both sides continued fighting. George Monroe was five years old during the attack on the Greenwood District. He remarked that some images could never leave his mind. He remembered seeing people getting shot and a mob of white men coming into his house and setting the curtains on fire and then setting the whole house on fire. He also recalled hiding under a bed with his older sister when a rioter stepped on his finger, causing his sister to throw her hand over his mouth to prevent the men from hearing his screams. Numerous eyewitnesses described airplanes carrying white assailants who fired rifles and dropped firebombs on buildings, homes and fleeing families. Law enforcement officials later said that the planes were there to provide reconnaissance and pro- protect against a Negro uprising. Law enforcement personnel were thought to be aboard at least some of these flights. Eyewitness accounts such as the testimony from the survivors during commission hearings said that on the morning of June 1st, at least a dozen or more planes circled the neighborhood and dropped burning turpentine balls on an office building, a hotel, a filling station and multiple other buildings. White soldiers from outside of Tampa arrived in uniform by rail car and declared that they were not there to kill black people, but they were there to help. Mabel Little recalled, they wanted to take the men and leave the women and children out there. But I spoke up and said, no, we want to go with our husbands. If you're going to kill them, kill us all together. During the riot, black men took up arms to protect their families. Because of this, they were charged with incitement, taken off to jail or to the country fair, county fairgrounds, excuse me, and tagged for identification. The Red Cross reported more than 300 people had been killed. Newspapers listed almost 100 deaths, but city officials put the death toll at 36. More than 35 blocks of Black Tulsa were burned to the ground. Over 4,000 people were left homeless. Still, most of the people of Greenwood refused to leave. Secondly, not only do you need to Remember the love of God. You secondly must also reflect the love of God. You and I have to reflect the love of God. First Corinthians 13 reminds us really of, of three things. It reminds us of the, the power of love. It also reminds us of the practice of love. And it also reminds us of the priority 
Come on, somebody. The priority of love. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, those first three verses remind us that that love is what gives meaning to great words. Love is what gives merit to great worship and love is what gives measure to great works. Amen. Love is what gives things meaning and value without love. You don't have anything. The power of love is that it gives meaning to great words and great worship and great works. The practice of love we see in verses four through seven when it talks about all the things that love is and all of the things that love is not. I will tell you that that love is eight things according to these verses and love is not another seven things. What it says is love is patient. Love is kind. Love is forgetful. Love is joyful in truth. Love is protectful. Love is trustful. Love is hopeful and love is enduring. What love is not is it's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it is not pleased with evil. We have got to reflect that kind of love in our relationships. Once we understand the power of love, then we have to get on board with the practice of love. And finally, we have to understand and discern the priority of love. That's why it says in these last verses, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Tongues still. Knowledge pass away. But we see in part, know in part as a reflection in the mirror. But he says, and now these things, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. When we understand the priority of love and we understand that love never fails, that love always triumphs, that love endures for eternity. That is powerful because then we understand that God has created us for an eternal love relationship with him. So it's not over when it's over, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, our etern- our perspective has to have an eternal perspective, understanding that the love of God that he has for us endures. And we've got to be able to reflect a long-term perspective that love triumphs, love never fails, and love is the what? Greatest of all time. After the black community was destroyed, blacks set about to try to rebuild, but they could not get building material locally in Tulsa. Most blacks had to import the bricks and steel they needed from neighboring states like Arkansas and Kansas. The winters of 1921 and 1922 saw hundreds of black folks living in tents because they were not able to build their buildings. Most of the promised funding was never raised for black residents and they struggled to rebuild after the violence. City planners also immediately saw the fire that destroyed homes and businesses across Greenwood as a fortunate event for advancing their objectives. Meanwhile, showing a disregard for the welfare of affected residents. Plans were created to rezone the burned area for industrial use. The Tulsa Daily World reported that the mayor and city commissioners expressed that a large industrial section will be found desirable in causing a wider separation between Negroes and whites. 
the Reconstruction Committee had intended to have the black landowners sign over their property to a holding company managed by black representatives on behalf of the city. The properties were then to be turned over to a white appraisal committee which would pay residents for their residentially zoned land at the lower industrial zone value in advance of the rezoning. Professor J.W. Hughes addressed the white reconstruction committee members in opposition to their proposal, coining a slogan which would, be, would, be, would start to galvanize the community. That slogan was, I'm going to hold what I have until I get what I've lost. Construction of the Tulsa Union Depot, a large central rail hub connecting the three major railroads, began in Greenwood less than two years after the riot. Prior to the riot, construction had already been underway for a smaller hub nearby. However, in the aftermath of the riot, land on which homes and businesses had been destroyed by the fires suddenly became available, allowing for a larger train depot near the heart of the city to be built in Greenwood instead not only must we remember the love of God not only must we reflect the love of God lastly if we're going to make it over we have got to return the love of God John 14 and 21 that says he that hath my commandments and keepeth them he it is that loveth me he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and I too will love him and will manifest myself to him. When I say return the love of God, I'm talking about being obedient to what God has revealed. That's how we demonstrate our love to him. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, according to John 14 and 21, that we demonstrate love by our obedience to what he has revealed. When I had a pulmonary embolism in 2016, the doctors said that the dispersion pattern of blood clots in my lungs had a 25% mortality rate. That's what you usually get. One out of four people die when you had a blood clot dispersion that I had in my lungs. And as I sat in the ICU, I asked the Lord, what am I supposed to learn from this? What's the takeaway for me? And as I've told you many times, if you ask God a question, he will give you an answer. And so I started to look in his word and I was looking around and I started going to some more familiar scriptures that were in my conscious mind. They that wait upon the Lord, he shall renew their strength, you know. You know, one thing of I desire of the Lord, that will I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. He was like, nope, keep going, keep going. Came down to Psalms chapter, chapter 91. He that uh, abideth in the secret place uh, shall abide in the shadow of the almighty. All, I was like, yeah, he's like, no, keep going. And so I, 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 I camped down on some verses that were not in my conscious mind. Of course, I've read them before because I've read the whole Bible, but, but, but. He showed me some verses and it became so clear. And here's what those verses say. They're in Psalms 91, 14 through 16. He said this, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will protect him. 
excuse me, I will rescue him. I will protect him because he acknowledges my name. He will call on me in trouble and I will answer him. I will be with him. I will deliver him and I will honor him. He said this time you're alive only because you love me. That's why you're alive. Yeah, I could have taken you out. But what I want you to know is in, in this situation, in this particular circumstances, in my sovereignty, the one thing I want you to know, and he gave me two words. He said, pursuit matters. What you pursue in your life matters. What what God is trying to do in, in terms of a relationship with you. He said, the only reason you're alive today is not because I love you, but because you actually have returned my love to me. You love me, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to honor you. And, and that's so important. Your pursuit of what God wants in your life is so important to how you get over. You got to remember the Lord. You got to reflect the love of God and you've got to return the love of God. You have to have the kind of faith that won't shake. Unshakable faith, like the faith that the three Hebrew boys had in, in Daniel chapter three. That kind of faith that says, you know what? I understand if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. Faith that says God is faith in his person. God can faith in his what his power god will deliver us faith in his promise but then god may not and that's faith in his purpose unshakable faith in his person and his power and his promise but more importantly in his purpose we have to return that love no matter what because pursuit matters Despite all these horrors, tribulations, and brutalizing events, our people survived. People like Olivia Hooker, who was only six years old when the massacre happened. After the massacre, Hooker and her family moved to Topeka, Kansas to rebuild their lives. Hooker recalled her mother telling her, don't spend your time agonizing over the past. With a new fresh start in Topeka, Hooker was the first African-American woman to join the Coast Guard in February 1945. After leaving the Coast Guard, Hooker went on to earn her master's degree in psychology from Columbia University. And she earned her doctorate in clinical psychology at the University of Rochester. Hooker went on to have multiple jobs with her degree in psychology, mostly basing her work on the Tulsa massacre. Olivia Hooker retired from work at the age of 87. She died at the age of 103 on November 21st, 2018, peacefully in her home in New York. People like Eldoris McConaughey, who was nine years old, she remembers being frantically awakened by her mother and remembers her mother saying, the white people are killing the colored people. After escaping briefly, her family slowly rebuilt their lives in Tulsa and never left, referring to it as their forever home. Eldoris was married to Arthur Makata, chief for 67 years and had four children. 
She died on September 12, 2010, several days before celebrating her 99th birthday. Psalms 91 and 16, that last verse I didn't tell you says, and with long life. Come on, somebody. I will satisfy and show you my salvation. People like Hal Singer, who was born in Tulsa to two working class parents. He was 18 months old when the Tulsa massacre took place. A white woman for whom his mother worked put his family on a train to Kansas City during the massacre so they would have a safe place to wait it out. But they returned to Tulsa and stayed in the Greenwood District all through his childhood. As a young boy, Singer hung out at the railroad tracks and invited jazz bands to come over and have some of his mother's cooking. This helped him in the long run as he became an iconic saxophonist of his generation. Singer went on to play with Duke Ellington and Ray Charles and Billie Holiday. He was married for over 50 years to his wife, Arlette Singer. And on August 18, 2020, just months before his 101st birthday, he died in Chateau, a suburb of Paris, France. Like George Monroe. Mary Jones Parrish, Leslie Benningfield, Essie Lee Johnson Beck, Vernie Sims, and countless others who not only survived, but who thrived, who made it over, who made it over, how I got over, how I got over. My soul looks back and wonders how I got over. How do you survive tragedy and pain and suffering like that? You can do it as well, believer, when you remember the love of God, when you reflect the love of God, and you return the love of God. You too can look back and wonder how you got over. Father, in the name of Jesus,